Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. On today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Iro Zolidou Devo. And Iro, I'm so sorry if I've messed up your surname there. Iro completed her undergraduate studies in Greece before going on to do her master's and PhD in the Netherlands. Her PhD project titled Setting the Foundations for Maths Achievement, Working Memory, Non-Symbolic and Symbolic Numerosity Processing focused on the cognitive underpinnings of children's mathematical skills. Iro is an expert on executive function and maths and is one of the most fun guests I have ever had the pleasure of interviewing. In this conversation, we focused on three main areas. Firstly, why practicing estimation might just be one of the most useful things we can do with our students. Secondly, the use and misuse of the equal sign in algebra. And finally, just how do studies measure working memory? I'll be back at the end with a few things I've been thinking about since speaking to Iroh, but for now, let's get cracking. OK, 
Okay, Iro, we start as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? I absolutely love this question. My favourite number is five and that's because it played a really prominent uh, role in our family life. Um, and also for me, it reflects the middle, um, which relates to one of my favourite Greek, ancient Greek sayings. Um, it says, pan metron ariston, which in English is loosely translated to moderation is best in life. Um, so yeah, five is my number. Fantastic. Hey, you, you've a bit of a teaser there. You've said it played an important role in your family life. I can't move on without you digging into that a little bit more. What what, what role was that, Ira? The thing is, it's a it's it's all over our birth dates, but I don't want to say them because obviously <laughs> I don't want everybody to know our birth dates. So there. Fair enough. I'll let you off. I'll let you off. Okay. Uh, question two then. What was your favorite topic in maths as a student? Um, it was algebra. Um, it did because it, it just made sense. Um, as long as you just followed certain procedures and steps, you could solve anything. It just felt clean, easy, and orderly. You know, there was no controversy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like it. And final question: uh, What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in research and education? Uh, I've often asked myself that. The problem is that I can't really imagine myself doing anything else, to be really honest. I love my job, um, but I guess if I wasn't concerned about money and uh, I was allowed to daydream, I wouldn't mind owning uh, a little library slash cafe on a, some some dreamy beach on a greek island that sounds lovely to me <laughs> that sounds lovely to me as well <laughs> very nice very nice okay and um, could you please give listeners just a bit of a sense of your career to date if that's okay iro where, where did it all start for you and how did you get to where you are now oh okay um it's a long story i'm gonna make it as short as possible <laughs> so um i studied psychology in greece at aristotle university of thessaloniki um and i always thought i wanted to be a, an educational psychologist and i wanted to work with children um so at the end of my studies i also worked in clinical settings um also in a psychiatric ward and i tutored children um and that's where i realized that's actually not where i want to be i i wanted to be part of the process of answering questions because the information the information the available information that i had there and then i wasn't satisfied with so i realized i actually wanted to be a researcher so that um after that i went to do a research masters in development in developmental and educational psychology at leiden university in the netherlands um that was really um intense and tough and excellent um and right after that i did a phd in psychology and education at the vu university of amsterdam again in the netherlands i was those were the best years i absolutely loved it and it made me fall in love with mathematical cognition research um, then I did a super short postdoc, which was a collaboration between the VU University of Amsterdam and Leuven in Belgium. I was traveling a lot, a lot back and forth with the train. Um, and suddenly I got an email from Camilla Gilmore, our, one of our center uh, managers, and she kind of got me to come to Loughborough, give an interview for a lectureship. And I don't know how, but I ended up um, to, at Loughborough University <laughs> as a lecturer. Uh, and now I'm a senior lecturer at the Centre for Mathematical Cognition at Loughborough University. Fantastic. Superb. Well, just before we dive into your chosen area of research, I always ask my guests to pick out a favourite failure from their career. Now, this could be this could be anything from your professional life or from your research, but I'm looking for something that didn't quite go according to plan and what you learned from the experience. Mm -hmm. I love these questions. They're important. Um, so 
the one that really sticks out for me was when I, as a, a PhD student, um, I submitted one of my very first papers to a very um, prestigious journal. I was really looking forward to the feedback and the review process. And when you become a researcher in the process of becoming a researcher, you're always t- told, you know, you have to get used to rejection. But no matter how many times they tell you that, it always hurts. <laughs> so I got back uh, this review where um, the, a reviewer was quite rude, to be fair, um, about a finding that I tried to explain. So allow me to explain that there was a particular finding in this paper, which was not exactly the same as in other papers. And I, I explained that the reason for this was because of the Dutch language. So the, the way Dutch children have uh, the way Dutch number names are is quite difficult um, for children, and therefore they would lag behind um, in this particular skill. And the reviewer said something like, "Oh, it's a far-fetched cry for you to try to explain this finding with this explanation." <laughs> so obviously that really hurt, <laughs> and also it got me. I was like, "Oh, wait, surely this is obvious to everyone." So I don't know if you know, but in Dutch. And German number words um, above, for numbers above twenty, so for two digit numbers, um, they rever- they they inverse the names. So instead of saying fifty two, they will say two and fifty. And yeah, do you know what? Do you know what, Tara? I only found this out three hours ago when I was interview- <laughs> interviewing your colleague Julia, and it blew my mind. I did not realize this at all. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And that, that must be an absolute nightmare for, for those students. It is, and not just for students, for international PhD students too. <laughs> yes, <of course. laughs> I would go to the supermarket and imagine you have a number like with also decimals. So the decimals are also named as a, as a, as a natural number, let's say. So um well let me explain what i mean say you have 52.69 that would be in dutch 250 and then 2 and 50 and then 9 and 60 see i can't even (laughs) (laughs) so um it it, you could feel your brain trying to reverse things um but what was really obvious to me was not obvious to the reviewer and many Mm. many people so that comment that failure uh, that rejection from that journal actually led to a completely new line of research for me because I set out to prove that this was the reason why our Dutch-speaking children la- uh, uh, underperformed in the symbolic approximate arithmetic task that I used in my studies. And indeed, I contacted Camilla Gilmore here in Loughborough. We did a study and we proved empirically how Dutch children lagged behind an entire year in this task simply because of the way the numbers are named in Dutch. Wow. Gee, and just, just on this, because again, I, I spoke to spoke to your colleague about this, but I was itching for more Ira at the end of it because it, it blew my mind a little. Um, do, does that gap, does it does it eventually narrow? Is it just something that, that appears early on in students' mathematical experience? Or does it does it continue throughout? That is a really good question. Um and, and something that we're still trying to answer, to be fair. So um, you would think, right, with development and education, these simple words are automatized, so you no mm. longer have to process this, right? So this incongruency between the way that this, the way you write and you say the numbers, should the effect should disappear. But actually, what we're finding, so these are studies um, that are currently um, in the pipeline, is that it also affects adults' numerical cognition on the very basic level. So, for example, in one study we we saw, in an eye-tracking study, we saw that um, Dutch participants might even look at the inversed 
um, number. So say you tell them the number 92 and they have to find its position on a line between 0 and 100, um, instead of looking at it directly to the position of 92, they might look at 29, which are completely wow. different numbers, right? So even though they are automatized indeed and they are the, the, the name that is immediately activated, that incongruency means that there's also been a small um, association between this uh, symbol and its inverse num and the inverse number, which can cause confusions um, even later in life. Not to the extent that it's you know that you would be it would be obvious, but it does cause small effects in adulthood even. That's really interesting that. And again, I, I suspect at some point we'll be talking about working memory and so on as, mm -hmm. as we progress through this conversation. But my very limited understanding is that when things aren't kind of automatized like that, or if, if, if adults or students have to give it that extra bit of attention, that might be fine. But if, if that's involved in some kind of complex problem, then that extra attention may just be enough to kind of tip that student um, into that state where they can't quite solve that complex problem would, would, would that be fair that actually when, when when these things start to get woven into more complex matters this could potentially be a problem or, or i miss something there you are absolutely right i could not have said it better it's it's if these you see these small effects in such simple tasks as finding the position of a number on a number line or in another study we asked our participants they would hear a number name see a number and they had to say whether these match or not, right? Mm -hmm. This is an absolutely basic task. Um, uh, and when you see small effects and such very basic um, uh, numeracy tasks, exactly as you said, when you have to do complicated um, uh, arithmetic tasks or, you know, say you're a, a cashier and you, 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 you are trying to calculate things, but also people are talking to you. So there's a, a working memory overload happening anyway. This, this tiny effect could then affect you, right? Um, in real life, we see it at conferences. Um, now, whoever has worked with me now notices at conferences, uh, Dutch colleagues will by mistake inverse numbers when they're giving presentations because that is a demanding situation yes. that you're in. And suddenly they're, they're saying the inverse inverted numbers by mistake. So yeah, indeed, working memory overload plays a big role. That's really interesting. And I'll warn you now, I've probably peaked there. That'll be the last time I'm right about something in this conversation, Ira. So we will, might as well end it there, to be honest with you. But uh, we'll continue and, and see what happens. Um, so let, let's turn now to your chosen area of research then. Well, what is it? What are we going to talk about today? Oh, uh, well, it's um, oh, my, my research is quite, broadly speaking, it's about mathematical cognition. So I'm interested in the skills that um, set the foundations for the development of children's mathematical learning um, and I've so far I've had a particular interest in the role of working memory um, estimation skills and language uh, that we talked about already um, I primarily focus on early years children's numeracy skills but also have done some research with adults uh, like the one I just mentioned um, and also recently through my brilliant PhD students uh, we've I've developed an interest in research in um, mathematics anxiety and in equal sign so the importance of the equal sign in algebra performance 
Wow, there's a lot for us to dive into there. Sorry. I like it. No, no, this is this is this is great. And um, so, again, it's a very broad area that we're going to talk about here. But what what is it with those kind of more specific elements that attracted you to them, um, Ira? What, what what kind of yeah mm-hmm. gets you going with those kind of stuff? Uh, well, it, I guess it, it started from when I wanted to be a child's a children's education psychologist. Um, so I I wanted to ha- properly understand. Um, how well help children learn I was always fascinated by the science of learning and how the brain learns and I guess it's it's it's, because mathematics seems to be such a big problem for so many people right Mm. Um, I kind of got hooked on it during my PhD research Um, it's just it's for me it's 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 because of the huge impact that mathematics has when you think about it early numeracy predicts uh, people's future financial decisions, their 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 health decisions, um, their their overall quality of life, and it plays such a big role. Um, also, there was a report recently that said um, uh, that the annual cost to the UK economy, right, for, for poor mathematicals of poor mathematical skills, was estimated to be some, something like thirty three billion pounds. Wow. So when you put that in context, you realize how how important early numeracy is. Um, and that's why I I focus on it so much. Fantastic. Well, um, what would you like to do, Ara? Should we should we pick a particular element of research that you've you've conducted and, and dive deep on that, and then return to some of the, the other areas? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, go. Which one would you like to go for first? Then? Oh, um, I guess yeah. I'll focus on the early numeracy research, uh, which yeah. was also my PhD. So um, yeah. One of the biggest projects was that I've done was the so-called Math Child Project, uh, which was in the Netherlands uh, when I was a PhD student, um, where we did this really large uh, collaborative uh, study, which was between three Dutch universities, and we tested children all across the Netherlands. And um, yeah, several um, research questions were answered through this really big data set. We tested children across many testing waves. We started from when they were at five years of age at kindergarten, and then we so it's the, the stages are slightly different in the Netherlands to the UK. Um, and then we followed them all the way up to gr- end of grade two. Um, yeah, so in that one of the I guess one of maybe a study that your um, listeners might be interested in that came out of that big project was a study where I looked, I focused at what predicted. So what, which of these, how did these early numeracy skills at five years of age explain individual differences in how children started the math, the, the, explaining the children's starting mathematical level uh, when they entered formal schooling and also what explained their individual developmental growth Right, their developmental change from the start of schooling until the end of grade two. That's something that we lack a lot in our field uh, so far, understanding not just what predicts average performance at a specific time point, but what predicts our learning, our developmental trajectory, our potential to change, because every individual is so unique. Uh, you know, we all change and develop in different ways. So I was interested in identifying whether any of all these early numeracy skills don't just predict your starting level at school, but also your growth. 
Um, I mean, that that sounds like it's, that, yeah, that's an incredibly important thing to, to dive into, Ira. Can I just check, when you say uh, grade two, what, what age is that? Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, so that was uh, around age uh, eight, seven, eight, yeah. Got it. So if I've got my head around this, it's it's students experience it, uh, mathematical experience it at age five and what impact it has on their kind of starting level at, at age eight, but also the kind of rate at which they grow from there would, would that be would that be fair um i mean that was almost so we looked at what <laughs> see I, I told you i told you i peaked before <laughs> no no but i also didn't explain it appropriately so we test we looked at these early skills like five years of age kindergarten so before starting formal schooling in the netherlands and yeah. what which one of these explained the very start of grade one um, yes. So, well, the middle of grade one. So the, mo- the first time the, the, the children in the Netherlands receive these uh, so-called CETO tests, which are um, given to all children in the Netherlands, teachers administer these tests, the curriculum based and the standardized. So we wanted to see what explained their performance in those first CETO tests. And then we also wanted to see what, which of the, all these skills measured before the f- start of formal schooling then explained their development from that first starting point until the end of grade two. Does that Got make sense? It. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So yeah, what 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 did you find out? Yeah, so we all the, the so the early numeracy skills that we tested were various domain general capacities. Oh what do I mean by that? So domain general capacities are those that you use for all um, purposes so for all not just mathematics but other academic domains right so like working memory um, fluid intelligence um, they're important for everything um, so you had these many tasks assessing domain general capacities and then also several tasks that assess domain specific so mathematics specific skills like counting non-symbolic and symbolic estimation skills and comparison skills um, I'm probably forgetting some now, but <laughs> there was a, a range of those. And what we found, so these are all championed in the literature as important predictors mm. of children's uh, mathematics achievement. And indeed, our our results verified that all these skills together explained, um, uh, so a constellation of these skills explained variance in children's starting point. So let's say if you consider it like a race, uh, although we shouldn't consider mathematics achievement as a race, but I'm just to give you a visual. Sure. Um, uh, it, it explained the point where they would start the race from, right? Yes. Um, but uh, when it came to growth, so how fast somebody would run um, in that race, only one skill explained uh, growth, and that was symbolic approximate arithmetic. And, wow. Yeah. And we also explained very little of the variance in growth, which. Um, we all found outstanding. So all these skills that we are championing for are not really explaining growth. Um, so that was very interesting, and we're, we're trying to follow up on that. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. And the <laughs> obvious question I've got to ask you, Aaron, forgive my ignorance here, what what, what does that mean, symbolic approximate yes. arithmetic? <laughs> Very valid question. <laughs> so it essentially, the word that people are more used to for this is estimation. So the task that we um, used to uh, measure this is uh, a task where on the one side of a the screen, there was a cartoon called Sarah. On the other side of the screen, it was Peter. And Sarah would first get a box of candy. So let's say it would show the number 15. And then uh, and that would fall into a gray box. And then another box with a number on it would drop down. Let's say it was um, 
13. So the child was asked to approximately do this addition in their mind. And then the second question was, the, well, the last, sorry, then on the right side of the screen, Peter would get a box with, let's say, 49 candies. So the number 49 on it. So the question to the child, the final question was, who got more, Sarah or Peter? I kind of explained this very, very quickly. No, no, I've got no, no, I've got it. I've got it. This is good. Um, so imagine like five-year-olds. Um, mm. It's outstanding to me that they can even do this task because if you ask a, five, a five-year-old what is the number 49, they don't really know, right? Mm. But they can do approximate arithmetic and they show these characteristic effects in, 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 in performing this task. And this task was the only predictor of their growth until end of grade two. Wow, right. I've got many questions for you, for you here, Aramis. This is this is fascinating, this. Um, well, where to start here? Um, yeah, well, let's go for this. So if I just um, share with you a, a bit of my kind of history here of, of teaching, and you'll, you'll see where I'm going with mm-hmm. this um, in a second. So um, I taught for about 12 years without having um, read a single piece of mathematics research um, whatsoever. And I was very happy, to be honest with you. I was just <laughs> getting along. The kids seemed to be fine. I was happy. Everything was nice. And then I started interviewing people on this podcast and then I, it, it kind of, my whole world fell apart and I realized I didn't, I didn't, I'd never heard of working memory. I didn't know the importance of retrieval, all these things I just was, was clueless about. But what, what's, fa- and now I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with them, but what, what's fascinating for me hearing you talk about this is before I had this kind of revelation and this mid-career crisis, one thing, well, two things that I used to do a lot with students, particularly in year seven and eight, so when they first start secondary school, um, age 11 and 12, um, is two things. One would be a lot of Joe Bowler's work on, on number talks, mm-hmm. where we'd take a, take a calculation, the classic is 18 multiplied by five, and we'd look at lots of different ways of working it out. And, and that seemed to, that's, it was really interesting. I'm going a bit off topic here, but that seemed to be really effective with um, higher achieving students, mm-hmm. but perhaps less so effective with lower achieving students. And they were the students we were trying to target mm-hmm. because they didn't have these flexible skills to be able to manipulate the numbers, pull them apart, put them back together and so on. But, but that, that's a different matter. The the other thing that we did a lot was um, estimating. So there was, there's, there's this um, website called Estimation 180 by a, a US maths teacher called Andrew Staddle. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. It has... Um, 180 pictures of things like um, sweets in a jar or a lamppost or something like that. And the students have to estimate either how many there are or how big something is or how heavy it is or how fast something is and so on. Now, I wasn't, we weren't doing this because of any research or anything like that. We were just doing it because the kids seemed to really enjoy it. And it felt intuitively like estimation is something that would be, would be quite important for Mm -hmm. students, primarily for just checking. We were sick of kids getting answers to questions that could make no sense whatsoever, but the students weren't realizing that they were wrong. They were just, they'd made a slip. But if they had some ability to estimate, they would hopefully have picked up on that mistake. And our kids weren't doing that. So we thought, well, let's bring in some estimation tasks. Mm -hmm. Now, those estimation tasks were really popular with the kids. And they seemed to be having quite a a kind of tangible impact on, on their enjoyment in mathematics, but also in their in their general kind of arithmetic. Now we stopped, we, we stopped doing those um, along with the number talks because uh, again, they just kind of went by the by and they didn't no. come up in any, and they didn't come up in any of my research or anything, but now you're saying this <laughs> and I'm thinking what an error I've made here. No, so, uh, I loved everything um, you were saying up to the it's point. All that wrong, it's all gone wrong at the end. No. Yeah? So we, so uh, 
so is the bottom line from this arrow that these estimation tasks, the, these need to come back in, even at secondary? Would, would that be fair at secondary uh, school students' age? Well, I'm a researcher, so I can't say for sure anything. Sure. <laughs> it's because <laughs> of my profession. But I, I only tested this, obviously, with very young children. But I, the way I see it, and you said it, you, you, you really um, uh, spotted exactly what the point of this is. I see it as a skill that, really it's a control mechanism right it's that mm. control mechanism of understanding how off far off is your answer of yes. figuring out whether you're at least in that band of acceptable responses you know that range of not band range of acceptable yes. responses um and and that is why i think these estimation skills are so important and it's not just children i mean at adults also i get so annoyed with my husband we go to the supermarket he always can estimate how much we're gonna pay again <laughs> I'm, I'm always far off you know um but besides joking imagine if you're at again at the cashier and you've bought two books that are approximately 20 pounds each and then the cashier asks for about i don't know 80 pounds if you don't have that control mechanisms to understand that wait hang on you're way off here um you would you would be disadvantaged right so i think you should bring it back (laughs) (laughs) i think i think i think i think i definitely will do i'll tell you what fascinates me here the fact that five-year-olds can can estimate in this way because my, my instinct there is that a lot of these estimation skills actually rely on a bit of kind of arithmetic knowledge. Like it's all it's all very well saying that, you know, 97 is quite close to 100 and 8 is quite close to 10. So if I'm doing 97 divided by 8, I'll do 100 divided by 10 and so on. Mm-hmm. But you've then still got to do the calculation if, yeah. if that if that makes sense. But is it diff- are, are five-year-olds estimating in a, in a slightly different way than I'm describing there? That you are peaking always, Craig. You're not peaking. You're excellent. Your questions are excellent. Um, that is the question that we we are, that I'm, I want to answer. This is my next question. How are children um, able to do this task at this level? I hypothesize that it's their understanding probably of place value um, and perhaps the their their approximate number system understanding, um, their approximate number system skills. Um, however, I don't have <laughs> a perfect answer here. Um, yeah, it, it is outstanding to me that they can do this already at that age. They definitely are not doing the calculations the way you are. Mm, um, yes. um, Professor uh, uh, Dr. Andauker from um, Oxford has done uh, some research with computational estimations, which are slightly different. And she has shown how um, the, the children are using different strategies um, when they were, I think they were about eight in her studies, or between eight and ten. Uh, but yeah, we don't know exactly what they're doing and how they're, they are approaching these tasks. Sorry. It, 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 no, no, not, not at all. It, it's absolutely fascinating, this. Um, again, this, forgive me if this, this, is, this is an ignorant question. Do you, do you get the sense that this... this a kind of ability to estimate, if that's even the right word to use, is that something that kids are just just born with, or is that something that that gets developed through their early interactions with their parents and their surroundings before they before they get to age five? Again, you you have a very good question right there. So there was that assumption um, earlier that because because the symbolic approximate arithmetic task performance correlated with a children's uh, non-symbolic approximate arithmetic mm. performance and that is assumed to be a measurement of this 
um, innate uh, uh, ability to estimate and manipulate quantities, there was this assumption that, you know, um, it, it comes from exactly as you said, it's more of an innate base. But I highly doubt it. Um, I think we now have a lot of evidence about uh, 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 saying that it's not necessarily this ANS that is driving performance in these tasks. And um, uh, I think it's more about children being at that level where they understand the place value system, you know, and they're probably using, you know, the decade numbers to kind of come into this, uh, understand and estimate. So they're probably using only the decades. That's what I'm trying to say to compare the, uh, to make the, the estimations but again we don't know and i'm always wary of saying something is innate because mm. it comes out as if you know when the ans research came out there were these big headlines in the news oh we're born mathematicians and that yes. that was so wrong it made people think oh well that's why i'm not good at maths because i was just not born a mathematician <laughs> which we know is not true right it's all about education and like anything else maths is is a is a is a, a muscle that we have to train. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to be careful about what message comes across here. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And, and again, I, I know you you don't know, you, you can't know the answer to this, Iroh, but is your, what, what's your instinct that these, the, the, this ability to estimate, is it going to be also a predictor of um, the rate at which students learn things as they get older? So when, when, they're, when they're secondary age, or, or, or do you think the, the effect is going to diminish and perhaps some other predictor is going to come into play? And the reason I'm asking is I'm thinking that a lot of students' early experience of mathematics is going to be number-based, but obviously the older mm-hmm. they get when geometry, statistics, algebra comes into play, perhaps this this ability to, to, to estimate perhaps isn't going to be as significant. Well, what, what's your instinct on that? Well, I agree with you that, it, I mean, perhaps it will remain for topics like algebra mm. um, and, and arithmetic, but not so much for other um, uh, mathematics skills, like yeah, you, like you said, other mathematics domains like geom- geometry mm. or higher order um, mathematics. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating, Arrow. I, I want to ask you about some some other research <laughs> you're involved in. Is there anything else you want to say about this particular piece of, of research, though? Um, uh, no, <laughs> um, I think it is a fascinating uh, field, and I'm sorry I don't have more answers to it. We, I think that. The whole field is quite um, at nascent stages still, and we're we're, we're getting there slowly. <laughs> oh, and do you think, knowing what you know now, what what would your advice to teachers, uh, in particular, be? And I'm thinking perhaps early years, primary, secondary. Would it be as simple as to to make estimation and this discussion of estimation a regular part of lessons? Is is that is that the bottom line? Um. Yeah, so not lessons though per se, because early years I think it's more it's play play based. So mm. it would be um, nice if uh, for obviously every single research informs a little bit the theory, and the theory is what important for practitioners and for teachers. And um, yeah, what are, all of these studies are telling us is that you know numeracy skills um, and mathematics is a complex domain which calls upon a constellation of many different skills, not just math specifics, but also domain general. And we should be employing games with numbers. So we should have numbers in our children's games, uh, when use mathematical language. And yes, where we can also try to estimate things, put it in a 
structured play kind of uh, situation within early year settings, that would be brilliant. So counting, understanding magnitude, using number lines maybe, um, all of these, and place value understanding, all of these activities would enrich children's early numeracy um, environment and, and, and skills. Got it. Fantastic. So I'm definitely bringing back that estimation 180. That, that's, that's on the comeback now, Iroh. And um, right, I would like to talk about um, just something you mentioned when you were um, going through different areas of research and something caught my, caught my attention. And that was you mentioning the, the role of the equal sign in, mm-hmm. in, in algebra. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, Iroh? Oh, well, so my, my PhD student uh, would be more expert in this. So her name is Emina Simsek. Um, and um, yeah, she did a brilliant um, project where she um, collected data from six different countries in the world. Um, and what we looked at, so she tested about 3000 primary school children and, and primary school students and their teachers um, in China, England, New Zealand, South Korea, Turkey and the US. Um, and what we know about the equal sign is wh- how much it plays a vital role in in uh, uh, children's learning of of, of and performing uh, uh, in equations solving. And um, so far, the focus has been primarily on um, um, arithmetic practice that is being given to the children. So because it's only it's only been so far, you know, a plus b equals something. So the equal mm. sign has been used in an operational manner. Um, uh, it kind of fosters this view, wrong view for the children to only understand the equal sign as an, they have an operational conception of it. They yes. only see it as do something. Yes. Um, whereas what we want them is to, you know, refine their definitions of the equal sign and have a more of a relational conception of the equal sign, which is that, you know, reflects the interchangeability of the sides, right? Um, so in Emina's PhD, uh, what it, the publications are still in the pipeline now. Um, they, it's showing how across the world, uh, the best predictor of, of children's um, equation solving was actually their teacher's knowledge of their students' um, relational understand relational strategies. So it kind of highlighted the big part that t- teachers' knowledge plays, um, rather than just us focusing on 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 the textbooks on uh, and on, on the individual the child uh not that textbooks don't play a role sorry i shouldn't it's not that you know but everything plays a role and teachers knowledge is a, a bigger part internationally well what did you mean iroh did you say re- teachers knowledge of re- was it relational strategies did you say yeah that? so what, what? teachers knowledge of their students relational strategies so when and how they use relational strategies in their equation solving what's a relational strategy so again forgive my ignorance oh don't, um, um that's a good question so whether they really understand this relational conception rather compared to using the operational conception when they're solving equations. I see. I see. It is again it fascinates me this. Uh, I this is something I've not paid enough attention to just the equal sign in general. This is why I was I just wanted to 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 bring it up when when you mentioned it. It's the the, the I'm very casual with my use of, of the equal sign and I think for many of my students equal sign is a signal that something needs to be solved or some answer yeah. needs to be worked out and so on. But the other thing I I'm terrible at so I'm hoping I'm getting a bit better is is the distinction between the equal sign and the equality sign. So I, 
I, I would, um, or the identity sign, sorry. So I would, if there was a, a bracket, for example, to be expanded, so, so to say two outside the brackets and then X plus three in the bracket, I would always put equals after that mm-hmm. and ex- expect the students to know that that meant, okay, we need to expand the bracket, but it's, it's not equals. I want them to show me the thing that it's identical to. So there's a real danger, isn't there, yeah. that, that teachers are a bit casual with these signs. Yes. And it's, it's almost kind of the classic curse of knowledge. We, we know we know what it means. We know what we want it to mean, mm-hmm. but unless we're really careful with it, it can be it can be really confusing for the students potentially. Well, would that be fair? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and that's exactly what this research showed that this is an international problem. It's not just uh, within the UK, um, and we need to kind of raise awareness of, of 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 expanding teachers' understanding of their students' strategies that they're using when they see the equal sign and promote this relational conception of the equal sign. Yeah, f- absolutely fascinating. And um, what another thing I'd just like to talk to you about, Ira, if that's okay, would be um, so when uh, Colin Foster sent me through some uh, notes on each of each of the ten guests that are going to take part in this series, mm-hmm. um, I was looking through um, the, the, your notes and. and following following some of the links and i came across them um, that you're interested in the executive function and in particular with, with regard to maths now this again is terrible i then had to google what executive function was right because i it's one of those terms i'm aware of but I, i've certainly never never used it or certainly never used it correctly and what interests me about this is that the working memory seems to be an important part of this but it seems to be a bit above and beyond working memory now working memory is something we often discuss on this podcast whether we're talking about um cognitive load cognitive overload or whether the links to long-term memory and so on but i'm always fascinated because um kind of we all also have guests on who say no there's there's far more to to thinking far more to learning than than working memory that's far too narrow a, a definition far too narrow a model so i wonder um Ira, could you just talk to me a little bit about um executive function and in particular your interest in how it relates to to mathematics learning Yes, uh, well, you, you you mentioned a lot of things there. I know, sorry. Where to start <laughs> sorry, from. <laughs> sorry, um, So, well, I've primarily focused on working memory, to be fair. Um, working memory is kind of a part of executive functions. As uh, from when children, when they're young, you, you don't really focus on executive functions yet because they're not all developed. So executive functions is a bigger umbrella that kind of... Um, considers the separate components of attention, inhibition, updating, etc. Um, and all, as you can imagine, just me saying those terms, you can imagine yeah. they are all vital yes. for mathematics. Um, and understanding how a partic- executive functions play a role in a particular, when you're doing a particular arithmetic task or a mathematic task can reveal um, uh, the cognitive processing you know, that takes place when you're doing such a task. Um, for example, uh, in one of my studies, we, we talked a bit before about the ANS, the approximate number system, and how things blew up since that came about. So one of the tasks that were used, that were used to assess the ANS was the so-called non-symbolic approximate arithmetic task. Um, and uh, it, it the ANS is assumed to be an automatic innate system, right? So if if, if you take that uh, as a given, then of course working memory should not play a role um, when you're performing such a task. So we, we did a study where we looked at uh, whether the causal mechanisms and whether working memory indeed played a role 
during when you do a non-symbolic approximate arithmetic task at the age of five. And we found that indeed you do need your working memory. So children were updating um, their informa the information in their working memory. And therefore, this particular specific task is not, you know, as automatic or um, it does need higher, it necessitates domain, domain general capacities. Um, yeah, so... I'm not sure which other. Went well, to well, I'll tell you one thing. I'd I'd love love you to go a bit deeper on there, Ira. Is that this is always fascinating me. This, how on earth do you measure things like that? How on earth do you know that students are using working memory versus that it's automatic? Ah, so um, I love this question. So um, I'm going to try to explain now one of my favorite methodologies for doing um, such experiments, which is the dual task design. So what you do is you see you 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 your question is. What kind of, am I using a working memory component when I am doing this non-symbolic approximate arithmetic mm. task? So where this is a task where you see dots falling in a box, two set of, two set of dot arrays falling in a box, and then you see a red array and the question to the child was, which was larger, the sum right. of the two or the red array? Um, so to, to, we, the, the children did this task in a standalone um, version and also in uh, I think it was four other ones where in one case we loaded their verbal working memory so their phonological loop um, in another condition we loaded on their visual, their visual um, uh, uh, component on their spatial working memory component and then lastly their central executive these are all components of working memory and how we did that is for example, in the central executive um, uh, dual task condition, they while they were doing the dot task, so the non-symbolic approximate arithmetic task, they had to, at the same time, they were hearing these high and low tunes. And when the tune was high, they had to say, ah. When the tune was low, they had to say, oh, this was a fun, wow. very fun experiment. <laughs> so you can imagine you know, the, the five-year-old trying to respond and then also saying, ah, oh, ah, oh. Um, wow. Yeah. So that kind of at the same time interferes with one yes. component of working memory. If your performance breaks down in that condition, right? So if it, if it um, not necessarily breaks down, but if it's reduced mm. because of that secondary load, then that means that you need it. You ne it was necessary to use that component of working memory yes. when you do that task. What, what what did you do with the the visual one? What's the visual one? Um, oh, it's been a few few years since <laughs> the visual one. They saw a pattern. Uh, I think it was like a um, uh, like a Corsi blocks um, where they the, uh, different boxes were colored black. So they created different patterns, visual patterns. So they saw a pattern before the trial of the non symbolic approximate arithmetic task, and then another one at the end. And they had to say whether these were the same or different. Right. In the spatial condition, they had to remember. I think the uh, something, hmm, something spatial moved. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> um, and in the phonological condition, they had to remember a series of phonological input that I don't. I think it was letters. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm so pleased you're talking about this, Ara, because again, we've on this podcast for for many years now, we've spoken about working memory and cognitive overload as if they're kind of actual thing, you know, actual kind of tangible things. But it's 
I've, I've often wondered, well, how on earth are we, how on earth are we measuring this? Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and again, feel free if this isn't anything you, you feel comfortable commenting on, but we often talk about the danger of, of overloading working men, mm-hmm. whether it, we label it as cognitive overload or whatever. Is is that something that you, you can measure? And if so, how on earth do you know when working memory's filled up? Um, so, well, there's, there's two responses. One is research-wise, and the other one is education-wise. And I think the responses <laughs> are different. So in research, you know, if like the, the experiment that I just described mm. to you, if, if performance is significantly different um, in the standalone versus the dual condition and also the, the secondary task when it was done alone, mm. then you can see that, you know, there was a, a significant change because of what you what the, of of the load of the interference that you um, you know experimentally induced yes. to the participant. Education wise, it's a whole different story. You, how do you tell whether a child has been overloaded? I'm mm. not exactly sure. Um, one thing that this this is not empirical data. This is just me being a teacher. Um, is when I usually see it post hoc. So when a, a student will come t- to us at the Math Learning Support Center at Loughborough, um, and I, uh, I have in mind mostly girls because they, uh, I, I've seen them experience more anxiety with mm. with maths and and statistics. And the moment you kind of relieve all their worries and and they they opened up this space in their their mental capacity right their working memory to be able to think then you could see them being you could see their mind working right you could see the yes that they were finally thinking of this of the task at hand and not thinking i'm a failure i can't do this i'm not born to do math you know so for me it kind of I see it in in real life. I see it post hoc. I see a child or a student that is overloaded. Um, At least I feel like they are overloaded. And I try to relieve all of the extra information in their very limited working memory capacity um, so that I can open up space for them to think. That's really interesting. And again, this was a very recent revelation to me, the fact that you could think of maths anxiety in terms of being a strain or a load imposed upon working memory. And again, I'm, I'm very pleased to say one of your colleagues who's coming up later on in this series is going to talk about maths anxiety because yes. that's something I, I was incredibly ignorant of. So that, that's fascinating. Well, well, Ira, this, this is brilliant. This we, We've covered estimation, equal signs, working memory. Um, <laughs> is there any other area of research that you'd like to discuss before we start talking about some reflections and then your big three? Um, um, no, I can just say that, um, when it comes to mass anxiety, my colleague will give you more details. I kind of gave a very simplistic view right now, and it's not just working memory that uh, plays a role there. Um, I do have a new PhD student who's focusing more on mass anxiety, and I think it's an incredible field that we all need to be more aware, um, of, of, of our students, um, yeah, anxiety with specifically on maths. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, well, let's let's move to some reflections then, I wrote. So what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Oh, too many. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's another Greek saying um, 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 that the more you learn, the less, you, you know, the, the more you learn, the less you know. Um, yes. This, um, translation again. And indeed, the more research I do, instead of answering questions, I'm still, I have even more. <laughs> and it's not just with research. I think 
the biggest revelation for me was when I had a child, um, almost, it was two and a half years ago. And I've been now trying to, um, you know, he's my guinea pig. I, I all yes. the things that I've learned, <laughs> I'm imposing on him. And I, I for me, the, it was such a big revelation when I, you know, you learn sometimes these theories about, oh, my child will first be a one knower and then a two knower and then a three knower. In theory, that sounds amazing. And I thought, oh, I will see my child when he becomes a two knower and a three knower. And then I realized. Well, what, sorry, sorry, Aaron, oh, what, what's that? What's a one knower and a two knower? Oh, oh, sorry. That, I thought that was. Yeah. So um, there's this. Um, there's a lot of research that says that children kind of, uh, if they do this, it's called give end task, where they ask the child, give me one, I don't know, Lego block, or give me two. Oh. And when they're able to give you that, um, they, they, you, they, you're like, oh, they are now a two knower because oh, they Oh, that's brilliant. I like that. Yeah. Like that. Uh, and this is common, like, it's a, a very well known theory in the numerical cognition field in the early years. And I thought, oh, I'm going to test this with my child. <laughs> But then I realized it's really not as straightforward because some days he will be a two knower, some days he will be a zero knower. Sometimes <laughs> it, it really depends on his mood. Um, so that made me question a lot the methodologies that we're employing, and also it 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 really shows why we are um, so behind in in understanding, you know younger children's development of medical cognition. It's so difficult to develop sound methodologies that will give us, you know, the, um, a sound results and we can develop theories on early numerical development. It's not an, you know, it's not an easy task at all. Um, so that's one thing uh, that I've changed my mind about. Um, it's not, yeah, having a child tends to do that. Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting that. So I, I said to a couple of your colleagues on on the early episodes that I recorded that um, we had our first child. He's he's 20, 20 months old now, oh. and I I feel completely out of my depth because I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how. Like I'm, I'm I'm throwing numbers at him all the time, but I don't know whether he knows their numbers or. Sometimes I think he's got he's got his head around that, but then as you say, the next day he's using it in completely the wrong context. Yeah. So I think, oh god, I'm I'm letting him down now. And then I'm thinking. Like I've got to teach him to read at some point, and I don't even now with all phonics and stuff. I don't even know how where to begin with that. It's it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's all well and good, kind of thinking in the abstract, but yes. when it's when it's your child in front of yes. you, it's it's a different ball game. Isn't yes, it? I will share with you something which I may regret sharing, but um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I like you. I was throwing numbers. I'm throwing numbers everywhere. You know, it's like it's my job. I have to throw yeah. numbers everywhere. My child needs to be good with numbers, and then <laughs> and then I. At nursery, they don't know what I do. Um, and uh, I asked one day his key person, I said, how is he doing with numbers? And she, she said, well, he's really, that was when he was about a year, a year old. And she said, oh, he's really not interested in numbers yet. Oh, no. And that was like a dagger that went, the dagger went through my heart. <laughs> you know, anything else, you could have said anything else, it would be fine. But numbers, you know, she did say stuff like he's great with the alphabet, you know, but everything else just. It, I couldn't hear it anymore. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Well, I'll 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 share something fairly similar to that. So I um I like to buy him books, and I bought him um, a book. I was so excited about it. It's it's a fascinating book. I think it's called something like How Many or something, mm -hmm. and it's and it's really well, really really highly re recommended because it shows you pictures. It's a picture book, but it's not just like 
count the so they'll have a pair of shoes but it's not just like count the shoes the idea is that there's lots of different things you can count you could count the laces you can count the holes you could say it's one pair of shoes or it's two shoes and it'll be a similar thing so there'll be pictures but it's to encourage creativity in different ways of counting mm-hmm. and representing so i was so excited to give him this <laughs> we sat down i said daddy's got you a new book and we, you can see what's gonna happen yeah. and he just like he's learned the word no fairly recently and he just looked at it went no and threw it on the floor and I thought why do I why do I bother he's breaking my heart with this I'm so I feel yes I completely (laughs) I have so many number books that you know I'm hoping slowly they do like if I can give you some hope they they do you know my son at least is now interested in numbers so (laughs) that kind of completes my life but yeah, that's good. It, well, one day. Yeah, one, one day. day. <laughs> Maybe we're overdoing it and they, they don't want to do it because we are, you know, overly eager. That's the danger. Yeah, yeah that is that is the danger. Um, OK, a couple more, a couple more reflection questions. Um, is, there, is there anything, Iro, that you wish you'd known when you first started out in research that you know now? Oh, again, too many. Oh, well, um, one thing for sure, open science practices. So um, when when I started as a PhD student, um, there, many of these were not, we're not, we're not known yet. Um, um, and right now we are using a lot of these. So sharing our data more, um, uh, uh, pre-registering and our analysis and how much, how vital that is for, for doing rigorous research. So all of these kind of practices, um, I wish I knew when I started my PhD. Um, yeah, I also that I, I trust more now experts that are not too confident about their knowledge <laughs> and skills mm. exactly because I realize that the more you know, the less you know. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, every single study we shouldn't, um, and this is, I think, something important for teachers to know that from a single study, you can't really make too many conclusions, right? It's about the mm. theory that we develop. Every single study helps with the advancing theory in how the brain learns and how. And, and how children develop their mathematical learning. And it's that which will be helpful for teachers and education practice. That's really interesting. That, that's fascinating. And fa- final reflection, and then I'll hand over to you for your big three. And um, what areas of mathematics, education research, do you believe need more attention? Well, where should we be focusing our attention? Um, uh, well, early years numeracy in general, um, we don't know a lot about those, um, key, um, ages, you know, between the day they're born until five, we know very little Mm. and, and, and a lot of more research is now being conducted in this field. Um, language, um, is a huge, um, domain that has not been taken into account and how big of a role language plays in numerical cognition. The Department of Education's recent um, guidance for teaching mathematics tried to touch on that a bit, um, but we're not sure whether the um, things that they are emphasizing on, we don't have empirical data that they're they're efficient, but there is a bit of a language focus there. Um, and yeah, in general, mo- we're looking more at the predictors of developmental change rather than just predicting average performance of children at a specific time point. 
flipping out. Big air, big areas to look at. Sorry. Big areas. No, I like it. I like it. Okay, Arrow. So to, to wrap things up, let me hang over, hand over to you for your big three. So these could be three websites, blog posts, books, whatever you like. What, what, what would you recommend our listeners check out? And I'll put links to these on, on the show notes page. Um, yeah, I think just the, the, the I suggested two books that I genuinely um, um, well love. And I think they if people have time to read books, these would be brilliant. So one is the introduction to mathematical cognition by my colleagues Camilla Gilmore, uh, Matthew Ingalls, and Silke Goebel. Um, so I think it's a brilliant book. Um, uh, gives you all the vital information and up to date on what we know about uh, mathematical learning and thinking. Um, and then the second one is the Number Sense uh, by Dehane, how the mind creates mathematics. That's also a really nice book to read on the topic. And lastly, I put this the, the Lumen website um, for your um, uh, audience, that especially maths educators. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure if you've already advertised the Lumen here. Um, it's for um, all educators of mathematics. We provide um, free workshops um, at Loughborough University, so the Maths Education Centre. Um, and uh, I hope they are useful for um, those interested. Yeah, it's it's a great shout that last one. I was I was lucky enough to do an in person Lumen lecture last <gasps> a workshop last yes, last did. year, but of course now the the moving online and I know Colin's got some exciting ideas for some kind of online everybody can access ones and I've seen some of the names and there's some absolutely fascinating workshops coming. So that's a really good one to to choose, Ira, there for for listeners to check out. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's been fascinating. We're not, not just one area, but we've covered three biggies there. <laughs> and um, you've answered that that question I've had on my mind for so long, which is how on earth do you, we talk about working memory, but how on earth do we measure this, this cognitive load and so on? So plenty for me to, to digest that mm -hmm. and lots of practical takeaways as well. So Iro, thanks so much for your time. Thank I've really you. enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you. So there you have it. There was my interview with Iro. What a fantastic guest she was. Like all the guests in this series, I genuinely could have talked to them for hours and hours and hours. I tried to limit myself to between 60 and 90 minutes with each guest, just because I had so many to fit in. I've done these recordings over two days, but whew, I could have talked to Iro for a long, long time. Anyway, um, some things that have been swimming around in my head since speaking to Ira that I wanted just to share in these takeaways. The first is, of course, estimation. Now, that was fascinating, that just how significant students' ability to estimate things is and how potentially as teachers we can help students support their estimation skills. And this isn't just for practical reasons, for hope, hopefully cutting down daft mistakes in exams when they get an answer that simply doesn't make sense, but also just more generally to develop number sense better, a better appreciation for the magnitude of numbers. And also just when they enter the real world, just, just this ability to, to get a sense of, of whether things feel about right whenever they're being presented with information and so on. So as I, as I discussed with Iro, this used to be something that was a massive part of my teaching. Whenever me and my colleague were developing a new Key Stage 3 scheme of work, two of the things we slotted in right from the start was that um, once a week, every lesson was going to start with an estimation task and once a week every lesson was going to start with a number talk task and it's really interesting that the in all the kind of uh, big mid-career crisis that I've gone through and, and all the 
kind of obsession that I have now with things like working memory and uh, retrieval, long-term memory, desirable difficulties, and so on. These two things have just fallen by the wayside, and the start of my lessons now are very much retrieval as starts to lessons, whether it be low-stakes quizzes or or the classic starter structure, last lesson, last week, last term, last year, and so on. But these estimation and, and uh, number talks just, just aren't there anymore. And I've never really stopped to, to think why. It wasn't a conscious decision, and it just didn't really fit, fit into the, this new way I had of thinking about teaching. But speaking to Iro, I'm really reconsidering this now. And it's, it's made me revisit that site that I mentioned, estimation180.com, set up by Andrew Staddle. Now, just to give you a sense of this, if you haven't used it, or like me, if you haven't used it for a while, it's absolutely amazing. It, it's full of just pictures, kind of visual prompts that ask students to estimate some something. So day 13 was one of my students' favorites about how many total cheese balls are there. And it's you presented with six big jars full of these cheese ball crisps and students have to estimate how many there are in total. And for each picture, it comes with an answer. Now, I remember when I was doing this once with a year eight class, um, I was, and I should say, by the way, uh, we, we set in, in our school and this was, a I, I did the estimation task with, with all, all uh, different sets. And I had a top set year eight class. And I'll never forget this. We're doing this cheese ball task. And I should say, by the way, if I just reveal the answer to this, uh, there are 4,416 cheese balls. Uh, but when, <laughs> when I was doing this, I wandered past the girl. And she was The way we did it, we used to uh, project these pictures up at the front and the kids would just write down their estimate in their book and also their reason why. So just uh, give an insight into how they calculated it, what assumptions they made and so on. And I was just wandering around the class whilst the kids were doing this. And I was seeing estimates of like 10,000, 1,000 and so on. And then I saw this girl and this girl is a high achiever in mathematics. She'd written down 2 million. And I know you shouldn't do this, but I, I couldn't help. I just stopped and it was obvious that like she looked up at me and like the, the shock on my face must have given it all away because she said, I'm wrong there, aren't I, sir? And I said, well, I, I don't know, but it, I, I don't know, just, it might be worth just kind of reconsidering it a little bit. And she went, mm, yeah, crossed out 2 million, wrote down 6 million. And I thought, what the flipping heck's going on here? And it, it really brought it home to me that it, it's really important, this this ability to estimate and, and estimate. And maybe it's, it's something that's going to feed into other areas of mathematics, but also it's something that we can help students develop. Because then the way I used to run these tasks, project an image upon the board, the kids would write down their estimates and their reasons for it. And then we'd discuss, try and get a, a range of estimates. I'd try and figure out who had the lowest, who had the highest and their reasons for it. And then we talked, once I revealed the answer, we talked through strategies to, to, to come up with more accurate estimates. And this girl got better and better the more we did. But it was fascinating that in these early days when we were doing the cheese ball ones, she was really, really, really struggling. Um, just give you a sense of some of the other ones here. I've just fired up a few. Another good one, this is day 61, is how many small vases does it take to fill the large vase? And you've got a, an image of a small vase and a, an image of a large vase. And the interesting thing here is if you look at the heights of these, um, the small vase probably is probably about half, just under half the height. But of course, if you tip, start filling it up, um, it takes way more than two small vases to fill the large vase. And this could almost be a prompt as a way into talking about volume scale factor and so on if you wanted. Um, 
that another good one might be a bit seasonal for when you listen to this. Uh, this is day 68. How many lights are there on the Christmas tree? And it, they're just brilliant. these are just visual images. You bang them up at the start of the lesson. Um, and again, as I say, the way I ran it was the kids worked on their own, wrote down their strategies, maybe then discussed with a partner, and then we bring it together as a class, get the range of range of estimates and so on. But what I noticed, as I say, I hadn't revisited this for a while. I just Googled Estimation 180, and actually the first... Uh, site that comes back isn't the original it's from the meaningful math moments blog i'll put a link to this in the show notes and it's amazing this because it's a teacher talking about how they run estimation 180 with their kids and showing um some templates that they've created what they're estimating the reasoning the answer how far off the answer it was but also loads of um, support resources as well with it so if you're, if you're interested in seeing somebody else's take on uh, Estimation 180, how to do these estimation tasks, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating read this. So this is something that definitely will, will fall back into a part of my teaching. Just a word of warning, um, I've mentioned this on the podcast, I'm really guilty of this. Anytime I kind of think of an idea or somebody tells me an idea and I like it, I get obsessed with it and I bombard the kids with it and then they're sick of it. So I remember I was like this with Tarsia jigsaws when they first came around. The kids were doing a Tarsia every lesson. They, they never wanted to see another one again in their lives. It was the same with this estimation. I started off doing one of these at the start of every lesson and it became too much. I think about once a week, maybe twice a week feels about right for, for, for one of these perhaps to kickstart the lesson. So yeah, so that was uh, that was the kind of major takeaway, the, the estimation 180 and building that back in. Um, also, the other two things we, we spoke about, um, I need to get better with my use of the equal sign. It's really interesting that, that my students certainly see an equal sign as a signal to calculate something because that's always what it is. So that's one thing I need to move the kids away from. But also, as I mentioned to Iroh, I need to be more consistent with the distinction between the equal sign and the identity sign. Because, you know, it's only in the last kind of three years or so I've started using this identity sign um, for key stage three and four mathematics. Always using it in A-level for the trig identities and so on. But when I'm, um, yeah, expanding brackets or something like that, it's always the equal sign. But I need to be better with that. I need to be more consistent with that. And finally, I just thought it was fascinating to discuss how we start, how researchers get a sense of working memory load or cognitive load. And those experiments sounded fascinating because it's something I'd never considered. I read all these research papers about the strain on working memory and so on and so forth and the different channels of working memory. But I never, I never really, how bad am I? I never really considered just how this is being measured. And it was fascinating with where you've got the, the kind of visual distraction and then does that impair the task task, and then the audio distraction and so on to get a sense of whether something's been automated or whether it's still taking up uh, attention within working memory. I thought that was absolutely fascinating and it'll certainly make me look at working memory studies in, in a slightly new light. And we talk more about working memory throughout this series of, series of uh, interviews. So there you go. I thought this, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I've, I've enjoyed all of them, you know. It's just a pleasure to speak to people who's passion is about these really kind of for want of a better phrase kind of niche areas of education or certainly not the thing that as a, a teacher that we can think about in as much depth as this and it's it, yeah I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating and there's more to come there's another seven of these yet uh, in the series building up towards christmas so um all that's reminds me to do is to once again thank iroh uh, for joining me in this conversation and being such a fun guest to thank colin foster for helping me put this series together uh, to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show and to thank you my lovely loyal listeners 
listener for keeping on tuning in in your thousands. I, I really hope you enjoyed this mini series. If you are, let me know, and um, because I might look to do something similar, perhaps next year, perhaps take another theme um, and look to do kind of a, a series of episodes around it. I did it with the teaching from home once we entered lockdown. Maybe this is something that will interest people. Um, I'll still do the the big long form uh, kind of more general interviews, but let me know if this is something that uh, that, that tickles your fancy. Anyway, you take care of yourselves and I'll see you soon. Bye for now.